0: Welcome to the Energy Intelligence Podcast. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a reporter on the corporate team here at Energy Intelligence. Sitting next to me in Houston today is Bureau Chief Noah Brenner. Hey, Noah. Hey, Luke. And on the phone, calling in from an undisclosed location, we've got Casey Merriman, who is the editor of Energy Intelligence Premium. How's it going, Casey?
1: It's going well. Thanks, Luke. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, most of us at Energy Intelligence are still kind of decompressing from the Oil and Money Conference in London, which celebrated its 40th and final year under the Oil and Money moniker last week. Uh, the conference will continue next year, of course, as Energy Intelligence Forum. And in a way, this was kind of a fitting send off, or I should say a fitting transition into the next phase of the conference's life. This year, the theme was the energy transition and what it means for the future of an industry that is in flux. So what we heard at the conference, and really what what you're hearing pretty much anywhere you talk about energy, is that the energy transition is a real thing and that companies are starting to take it very seriously. And while plenty of leading voices in the oil and gas industry accept that this transition into a low-carbon economy is happening... I think many of them are still struggling to really put their words and ideas into action. So, Casey, let's start with you. Um, I guess first, do you think that's an accurate synopsis of where we're at right now? And how are oil companies thinking about what this transition means for them, and what are they doing about it?
1: Yeah, look, I think you really nailed it. I mean, this was my eighth oil in money, and we have colleagues who have been to many more. And I think we were all... Genuinely struck by the change and the messaging year on year. You know, I, there is a genuine recognition that the pressure that the industry is under is real. It's immediate and it's growing, right? And I think what we're seeing is that as kind of the general public that is concerned about climate change is not seeing enough movement on the policy side to kind of stave off what is seen as a potential climate catastrophe, that industry collectively is going to start finding itself under a lot more pressure. And absolutely, oil and gas is front and center in that. And so we really heard um, that it has hit home, right? That, that the industry needs to act and that it needs to be proactive. And we have seen some of this, right? I mean, we, for example, have seen Shell and Total, Repsol talk about moving into power and that involves both gas and renewables. We've seen A number of companies commit to reducing their own operational emissions and starting to think about how they can also contribute to offsetting the emissions of their consumers. Right? Um, We heard BP talk about decarbonizing gas. Right? A recognition that that gas simply being cleaner than coal isn't going to suffice. That said, you know we we can discuss you know later whether that's enough, but absolutely there is there is a change and the industry has woken up to to the fact that it is going to have to do more to protect its social license
0: and you think this is more than just kind of messaging or greenwashing as they say
1: yeah absolutely i and i think i think how it's different is that before it's always been, yes, climate change is real and it needs to be taken care of, but Hey, look at how much oil is still going to be needed for the next few decades. You know, Oh yeah. Climate change is real, but you're going to have to deal, you know, you're going to have to just accept that gas is going to be part of it. And that part wasn't there. It was, we need to get our act together, right? Uh, Methane emissions and gas flaring are an Achilles heel to this, Industry. It's, hey, we actually think that the climate is going in a catastrophic direction and we need to be part of the solution. That kind of thing paired with some, again, kind of on the ground attempts to incorporate this into business decisions is where things are different.
0: All right. Well, Noah, let's just take at face value kind of this this newfound sensitivity to uh, social demands, which is fine and refreshing to hear. But I I don't think it's lost on anyone that the pressure that really matters here, uh, as far as the oil company is concerned, is really coming from their investors who have largely soured on what a lot of people say is a sunset industry. Um, Could you just talk a bit about what we heard from some of the executives about the role that environmental, social, and governance issues, ESG, um, is playing into corporate strategies and and even uh, corporate valuations?
2: Sure. And I mean, that was, as Casey said, that that was a topic that was really front and center throughout the entire conference was uh, this energy transition is having a material impact on the way that uh, the global financial community looks at the oil industry. I mean, this is both a short-term impact in terms of things like um, trying to address flaring and and methane leaks that really play into the social license of the industry, but as well prepare these companies for um, what is assumed to be some kind of uh, carbon pricing scheme um, you know, in the various countries that they operate. And so, you know, sort of gets them out ahead of that. And then there's really also this longer term concern of, of what does the global energy supply look like in 2030, in 2040? How much oil is there in the mix? How much gas? Um, you know, where are renewables and what is the return profile look like of renewables? And how really should a company put together a portfolio that is resilient and profitable and allows them to maintain, um, you know, the dividends that really are important to to every investor almost these days. And so, you know, companies are, are focused on lowering carbon intensity that comes with, you know, things like gas and decarbonized gas, which I think we'll talk about a little bit more, and renewables, and, and lower carbon on oil. And I think it really remains to be seen whether this resonates with the public. Um, you know, I might argue that anything short of an absolute decline in emissions all the way through scope 3 is seen as falling a bit short. Um, but I think we need to remember too that when we talk about resonating with the public, that also means resonating with investors there's been increasing alignment between the types of things that we saw activists ask for um say in the last two to three to four years, and what investors are calling for and a lot of that has been um, quite simply less investment in production growth um, you know the longer the the more that companies invest in in long cycle uh, expensive projects that don't bring cash flow. You know, if not immediately, at least within the first couple of years, um, you know that makes investors nervous, and and it's it's really interesting that that is really what um, a lot of kind of activists had been asking for, uh, maybe a year ago. So we've kind of seen this divergence. Um, you know, whether or not valuations in the sector have necessarily been been hit too hard. I mean, I think there's there's definitely. Uh, Winners and losers. Generally, the U.S. independents have been hit really hard. I mean, we've seen some of the, the smaller cap U.S. independents, um, you know, as a peer group drop like by about two thirds in the past year or so. Um, and sure, I think what we heard from a lot of the financial community is there is probably room for uh, for some of that to rebound, but. Um, But over the time period and how that sort of ripples through uh, is is going to be really interesting because at the same point I think there is also agreement that we're seeing kind of a secular revaluation of the industry and how the financial community is willing, or the multiple the financial community is willing to pay um, to own shares and so it's moving from what was kind of a growth multiple um, to really a yield type of investor pool Um, and then on the other hand there probably is some you know there's probably a good argument that really there there is some overselling in the sector and that things can um, bounce back. Uh, but whether or not they bounce back to the same level that they have in the past, I think is probably doubtful. Mm. Um,
0: uh, okay, well, what about the national oil company side? I mean, obviously, the NOCs are not as uh, beholden to investor or public pressure as the IOCs are. Um, but do you get the sense that they are kind of wrestling with uh, this ESG thing as well?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that was, at least for for myself, that was something that uh, was maybe one of the most striking things about oil and money was the consistency in which we saw um, international oil companies uh, and NOCs both talk about the transition. I mean, I think NOCs are, they are very long-term in their thinking, and I do think they realize that, that there is risk to their business and their business model um, from from demand pressure, uh, going forward. And I think, so, you know, to me, it's maybe an open question. I, we do hear different things as to whether this is necessarily top-down driven by the governments. Um, and, and you sort of hear this idea that, that, um, people in, in these countries, uh, maybe aren't as concerned about climate change or concerned about some of the plastics and pollution issues that, that, um, some Western countries are. But I guess I would... I think it'll be interesting to see if that continues. Um, I mean, really, we're seeing a a level of interest in climate uh, and these environmental issues that I think is kind of transcending what were maybe some of the common assumptions about who cares and who doesn't. Um, And as well, you know, we saw this kind of manifest in in really um, ambitious decarbonization projects, Um, carbon capture projects from the likes of Cutter Petroleum, you know, uh, largest uh, LNG producer in the world uh, is working on on. Uh, carbon capture uh, facilities and things like that. And so, you know, it's not just simply paying lip service to the idea that, um, yes, climate change and energy transition is real, um, but actually putting to, to work uh, capital that otherwise, you know, maybe in the past would have been used for growth.
0: Hmm. All right. Well, uh, you mentioned QP. So let's talk about uh, natural gas for a minute and LNG. Uh, we've heard for years now how how much cleaner gas is than oil and certainly coal. And how it's a bridge fuel to a you know, a lower carbon future, and that's made LNG in particular a, a very attractive sector to invest in. But as any environmentalist will tell you, gas is still a fossil fuel and methane is as bad or worse for the climate than carbon. So how do we rationalize that? How can a low carbon future also feature such a heavy reliance on gas? Casey?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's kind of important to keep in mind is while we were hearing this change in conversation, we were not hearing any change in kind of the bullishness for, for gas's future, right? So, I mean, even our own projections uh, see LNG growing annually at 4% through 2030, and, and we um, on a on a few different fronts have maybe more reservations around some of the headwinds than other industry players in, in terms of market penetration and the price pressures from coal and renewables that that could make gas's ability to grow difficult but but what what we are seeing is that there is a recognition that gas has to kind of earn its place and so you know for example Bob Dudley BP CEO made the point that if Europe wanted to decarbonize its its energy system. Okay, that it would cost a trillion dollars more to do it without gas. And and I don't you know know the figures, but I, I that sounds right. It, it doesn't seem like it's just an industry talking point. Um, there are still limitations on say what renewables can do. Right. One of the things we heard was, for example, you know, China's sprawling cities. Just from a scale standpoint, it's going to be extremely difficult for renewables to to come in and meet electricity demand in a clean fashion anytime soon. It's not that it couldn't get there, but if you really want to try to move away from coal and decarbonize, like gas really could get you there sooner. And, you know, not to mention that not all demand in places like China and India is is power generation. I mean, city gas is, is a huge, you know, kind of growing piece of the pie as well to, to move away from more carbon intensive heating fuels and things like that. So so gas can have its place, but it has to be cleaner. And that is what the industry has not delivered, right? So we we heard a lot of things that can be done. We heard about CCS. We heard about controlling methane leakage. We heard about reducing flaring. We heard about making LNG liquefaction projects greener by, say, having the power that runs the plants potentially be renewables. We heard about improving logistics systems on LNG, so you don't have empty, massive cargoes going halfway around the world after they've delivered, right, because of point-to-point delivery structures. You come up with something that is much more optimized and make the whole kind of fleet greener. these are all things that the industry can do but is it doing them now and that is really the the key kicker i think what the industry is realizing but hasn't kind of quite accepted is that it has lost its it, so much of its credibility kind of in the at the at the table in the public discourse on this and until it can actually demonstrate that these are things are priorities it is Anything it can promise in the future is going to just be dismissed. And so, you know, we we heard about, like I said, you know, uh, gas flaring being the Achilles heel. Well, it, that yes, it's true. You have a BCF a day that's going up in flames in the Permian Basin in Texas. Until stuff like that is is actually managed and taken care of, um, it's going it is going to be a, a tough slog, and I think tougher than what the industry appreciates to this point even if it is kind of coming around to recognizing it Hmm.
0: that's that's really interesting um so okay well the energy transition clearly is a business problem that energies will need to figure out for themselves as we've discussed um but to the extent that climate change is also a social problem uh, and I, I guess I'll, I'll give this to either of you, but I mean, what, what role do governments play in all of this in terms of just regulations and policies that, that either further challenge the industry or in some cases prop it up, like we've seen with the Trump administration's rollback of um, Obama-era methane rules? Uh, I guess our company is now more receptive to heavier regulations, Noah?
2: Oh, boy, that's a good question. Um, You know, we've had, uh, we've seen, you know, the CEO of Shell has has said that, you know, his company is going to move at the pace that society does. And so it's putting, you know, it's putting responsibility on governments to to show Shell, okay, we're, we are um, serious about uh, encouraging low carbon energy, we are, going to move towards this this lower carbon future that probably has lower demand for oil. And Shell's kind of said, like, we're going to move in lockstep with society. And, and if society drags its heels, as has been seen in places like the U.S., at least at the federal level, um, you know, that certainly doesn't push companies to transform themselves any more quickly. You know, on the other hand, we have seen, you know, there were comments from from Bob Dudley, um, CEO of BP, as, as well as uh, Shell's Van Buren, about the need for governments to to put a price on carbon, the need for governments to to put on these regulations that in the past the oil industry really has not been supportive of. Um, and so it's hard. I mean, yes, it would seem outwardly like the oil industry is ready to be regulated more and to be regulated in a way that does does likely add to its own costs. On the other hand, you know, we haven't necessarily seen Maybe as strong support um, for some of these things. I mean, we, you know, whether or not BP was was lobbying against the federal methane rule, I mean, they would argue that that they were lobbying for a, a better rule and that the rule in place wasn't a great one. But you know, at some point, the industry is going to have to say, okay, this rule probably isn't the greatest that it can be, but we are going to very publicly, very early, throw our weight behind this because we think that this is something um, that the public wants to see and you know nothing is going to be is 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 perfect Um, you know similar situation um, you know we've seen industry come out with with proposals for a carbon tax now that carbon tax in the US um, generally the proposal limits their liability for um, for climate litigation you know it's potentially a uh, an acceptable trade off, maybe in their eyes, but um, I think Casey had this a really good point in her last response, which was that the industry is coming at this from a deficit of credibility. I mean, they've worked against regulations for decades now, um, and when they put forward a proposal, it's it it's often seen very very skeptically to begin with. And there's just a real lack of, um, I guess, trust probably on the part of the public and and on the part of uh, environmental activists that are active at the policy level um, that what industry wants is actually going to be what's best for for the planet or encourage a transition away from fossil fuels. Uh, And so I think that until industry is able to bridge that credibility gap, it could be that they maybe would like to see more regulation on themselves, but I don't think that they have... um, a great place at the table, uh, to formulate that. And I, I think that's coming back to hurt them. Hmm. Okay.
0: Well, I guess last and most importantly, and, and I, I think we've kind of danced around this and, and, come up with a couple ideas already but i mean just beyond getting up on a stage and saying all the right things uh what what do oil companies need to do in order to one survive and also just to maintain that social license i mean maybe that's the same thing but i mean beyond what we've kind of talked about already are there any concrete things that that we think um oil companies really need to start doing to you know for their own survival (laughs)
1: Yeah, I mean, I think just, uh, I think very briefly because this is important. I mean, one, we are not kind of acting from a point of advocacy and saying any of this uh, really kind of the whole ESG movement and, and the pressures that are going on with the industry things like revaluation that kind of thing is something that we, we really have been head on kind of seeing down the down the track and seeing as something that the industry is going to face and and that's been the case for a few years and even for us we have been surprised at the pace of change that has happened in the past few months and so what we're kind of trying to put out there is is just where we're seeing this trajectory kind of go, right? Where, where we're seeing based on, on the things that we were able to kind of get out ahead of, of, you know, previously. And so I think to that end, uh, you know, we, we started off with the industry recognizes that it needs to act. What I think the industry doesn't yet recognize is how quickly it needs to act. You know, between now and a year from now, it has a lot of work that it needs to do, and and like you said, look, we have touched on a few of them, but I mean, hands down, it has to get a handle on methane liquid methane leakage and and emissions and flaring. Like it's just it's it seems obvious, and yet the industry really kind of until now still fights even monitoring in some corners of of the world. Right, it has to get a handle on that. You know, um, it has to. Really put forward concrete steps. Okay. Decarbonizing gas is going to be an enormous undertaking. So what's the path to get to the final destination, right? So you have to start somewhere, but, but lay it out concretely what, what's being committed to and how you're going to get there. Um, I think one thing that you can understand this, that the industry has been loath to do, but is likely going to be imperative is the industry is going to have to check itself, right? Oil and gas is going to be judged by its worst actors and the industry itself is going to have to call it's own players out to get up to, to get up to speed because, you know, Shell or BP or whatever going out there and taking a lead on, on all of these things isn't going to keep the industry's broader social license. So it's really going to have to kind of step up collectively. And I think, you know, going to the, the points that, that Noah made on the investor side is that it's, it's no easy task, but these companies to need to demonstrate concretely how new areas are going to make money, right? So in renewables, how are you going to actually get double-digit returns? There can be the expectation that oil and gas returns are not likely to be as high in the future as they have been historically, but investors need certainty that that the plan in place to transition with the energy transition will remain profitable. And then and this is kind of a harder one to, to get at, but to the point about kind of having a space in the public discourse is the industry needs to just it needs to just drop any and all of its remaining defensiveness. It's not that, that there aren't valid points there or, or anything like that. It's just that the conversation has moved beyond that. and so it needs to proactively get ahead of where society wants to go even if it isn't quite there its own self. So those are kind of the main areas where we see that the industry needs to act sooner than later.
2: Yeah, I think I would just um, reinforce, especially uh, that fourth one that that Casey highlighted in terms of of industry um, really trying to self police on on the companies that aren't doing very well on ESG stuff. I mean, we we heard from Conoco how they have taken a really comprehensive look at at trying to minimize flaring, um, and we've seen that show up in 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 Conoco not uh, applying for a lot of flaring permits in the Permian. At the same point as Permian flaring has is increased over this period. Um, and quite honestly, the public doesn't care if Conoco has a great flaring plan if they see more and more flaring happening in the Permian. It's really that top-line level. And, and the industry is, is always quick to say, you know, well, uh, the biggest companies in the industry are always quick to say, like, look, we're being proactive on this. We are spending a lot of money on it. And they are. But if they don't rein in the lowest common actor within their own industry... Um, the public really doesn't care. Uh, and so I think that's really one place where regulation can make a big difference um, in embracing some uh, modicum, or at least some sort of common standard of regulation, because it's hard for, for a BP to tell a small mom and pop in the Permian, you know, that they're not going to flare a well or something like that. I mean, there's not really a mechanism to do it. And so it's done through regulation. But, I mean, until... Until there's a broader acceptance of this kind of across the industry, it it honestly doesn't matter what the leading companies do because it's not reflected in the way that the public looks at oil and gas. All right. Well, um, definitely a lot to think about. And I think uh, some
0: people certainly have their work cut out for them over the next year. (laughs) Um, Thank you, Casey. And thank you, Noah. Um, It's definitely some good insight. Uh, And for everyone listening, we hope to see you next year at the Energy Intelligence Forum um, in London. And until then, you can get all of our news and insight at energyintel.com.